The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, and in our study... Uh, the Spirit speaks to seven churches, we begin the examination of the, of the text of the Lord's letter to the third church of Asia. This is in verses 12 through 17 of chapter 2. And this is the church in the city of Pergamos. Now you remember from previous studies that these churches represent churches in all ages. Across the history of the church from the end of the first century to this present day, there are churches in varying degrees of the problems that we find in these two chapters of Revelation. The Berean Baptist Church of Roanoke Park, California, is a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And although the things that we read about here in Revelation seem distant to us and seem part of another century, yet we most certainly find something here, information that is good for us. It's important that we know the history of the church. Many have said that history repeats itself. Solomon, in the Word of God, said as much the same when he said, there is nothing now that is that has not been before. In other words, he was saying, history repeats itself. And folks, that is a frightening prospect when we consider the persecution that happened in the city of Pergamos and among all of these churches of Asia. History repeats itself, and we may find ourselves in that history once again, and the, with the church in, in uh, persecution. And so as we look at this, we have to consider the question. We must ask ourselves, could we be faithful if we experience the same things that they did in these churches? Would we fare any better than these churches of Asia? What if America looked like Pergamos? Well, the letter begins in verse number 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath a sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days when Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things, sacrifice unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with the word of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saying, He that receiveth it. This is the word of God. Amen. Amen. Exactly. Now I'll repeat this information that I have in a previous uh, sermons about the other churches, there's a pattern that's followed in each of these letters. The letter is addressed to the angel of the church, that is, the pastor. And it is the pastor who is responsible to relay this message to the people. Secondly, the author of the letter is Jesus Christ, and he always introduces himself with a descriptive phrase. 
Thirdly, there is a commendation for the church if it's warranted, or there may be a complaint against the church if that is warranted. Then fifthly, there's a call to repentance, and if repentance is not needed, then there's encouragement to remain faithful. Sixthly, the church is told to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then lastly, there is a good promise of the future if they overcome. Each of the letters unfolds that way, and so that gives us a good outline to follow to help us to understand the message the Lord gives to the church. I want to emphasize again for just a moment the pastor's role, that he is the key figure in the church. And we would take note of that by looking at the spiritual requirements, the stringent qualifications that are put upon the office of the pastorate, he is responsible, as I am every week, to deliver to you the whole counsel of the Word of God, to leave nothing out, to give you all of it so that you can understand what God has to say to you. Now, throughout history, uh, pastors have often been the target of hatred and persecution. Satan Uh, stirs up trouble on the outside of the church against pastors. He stirs up trouble even on the inside of the church against pastors. But another way that Satan stirs up trouble is to work on the pastor from the inside, from his own heart. He stirs up trouble in the own, on our own heart so that many times we doubt, uh, sometimes we have fear, sometimes there's turmoil in our souls. And if there's anyone in the church that you ought to pray for, it is the pastor. And I don't say that selfishly. I say that out of necessity. Now, in one sense, the pastor is the face of the church. The church is rarely stronger than the pastor will be. And so to destroy him and to cripple him in his work, that is a serious blow to the success of the church. And so if Satan can hobble him through sin or even kill him with persecution, then the church will will suffer a serious setback. But we need to rest assured of this, that the Lord is in control of all things. And if a church is determined that it's going to serve Christ, that it will remain faithful to Him, then God will always raise up a man to lead His church. That's the way it's been for 2,000 years. The church hasn't suffered because pastors have been persecuted when the people remain faithful because the Lord always raises up His man. And so a better tactic for Satan is not to kill the pastor. A better tactic is for him to corrupt the doctrine that he teaches. A better way is to get the church to compromise by watering down doctrines of the faith, by changing it, by perverting the gospel of Christ, because that is the only method that God uses to save people and to change their lives. Paul said that anyone who changes the gospel is to be accursed. The word that he used is anathema. And it means separated from God in the sense to go into everlasting hell. That's how serious it is to pervert the Word of God. Now in this letter, in verses 14 and 15, there are two critical errors in the church. The doctrine of Balaam and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And those are doctrines of compromise. So the Lord strongly rebukes this church for compromise... His gospel will not be brought into disrepute without very serious consequences. Now, if Satan can corrupt the gospel, he doesn't need to kill anyone. A pastor and a church that fools people into thinking everything is just fine, that you're okay the way that you are. If you have a pastor and you have a church that believes that, that everything, nobody needs to hear about sin, nobody needs to be told about salvation, 
then Satan is perfectly fine with that. And so thus we see a proliferation of multiple denominations that preach a false gospel. And Satan is content to leave those alone because they'll do his work for him. So Satan has his preachers, he has his churches out there that don't remain faithful to the Word of God. And when you see a church that doesn't receive opposition from the world, then you know they're not preaching the Word of God. Now this letter begins with a salute to the pastor, and then the Lord speaks his personal descriptive phrase. In the letter to the Ephesians, he said that he was the Lord of the church who holds the pastors in his hands. In the letter to Smyrna, he's the eternal God. He's the first and the last, the one who is dead and is alive. Now in both of those letters, the descriptions that Jesus gave align with the issues that are addressed in the letter. Especially, as we look at the commendations of Smyrna, each time that the Lord made a statement, that was a comparative analysis of what they experienced and what he could do about it. Does Satan kill? Okay, well the Lord makes alive. Are there, are there Jews in the city that claim to be the gathering of his people? No. The Lord says they're the synagogue of Satan. Do heathens wear garland crowns as they go up into their temples to worship their false gods? Well, yes, they do, but the crown of a Christian is better. God gives his people a crown. The crown of Christ is better because we receive it in the temple of the living God in the eternal temple in heaven. Christ always has an answer. He always has the appropriate word whenever it's needed to counteract the claims of Satan. And that was certainly needed in Pergamos because this is a city that is imperiled more than the others. Now maybe you noticed it, I hope, when we did the reading that very specifically it said that Pergamos is a place where Satan's seat is. Satan has a throne in Pergamos. Now he has a throne that's high and lifted up above that city, but the worship there is as low as it can possibly go. Now, what I want to do today is to spend our time with this descriptive phrase that the Lord gave. He said, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. Those of you that are students of the Word of God, you are familiar with the reference. This is a description of the Word of God. So first we're going to look at this. The Word of God, or the Word of Christ. It is the Word of Christ, which is the same as the Word of God. And our first duty... Our most important duty now is to understand this very critical symbol in the Scripture. What does Christ mean when he says that he has a sword? And what do we make of a sword that has two edges? Now in the first chapter, in verse 16, it says, Out of his mouth goes a two-edged sword. Now obviously, the connection of the sword with the mouth is a very odd combination. A sword is not in your mouth. A sword is something that you hold in your hand. People that learn to use a sword handle it with precision. People don't fight with swords anymore. You don't see that. Although occasionally you may see a, a YouTube video where someone has taken a sword to cut off the head of an infidel. But usually a sword is relegated to sport. You might see it in the Olympics, fencing in the Olympics. And if you watch that, you can see how those people can use a sword and very deftly they can cut like a surgeon. Well, the sword of Christ is not a sword that you hold in your hand, but this is a sword that comes out of the mouth. In Ephesians chapter 6, 
Paul spoke of spiritual warfare. And he said that our weapon, the only offensive weapon that we have, is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Words come out of the mouth. Hebrews is descriptive of the sword's ability. Hebrews 4, verse 12, For the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Quick means living. That's the emphasis of this verse. It is the living word. And I don't know how to describe it to you other than to say the word has a character of its own. It has a character, it takes on life of its own. It's active and moving. It's powerful and does more than any other words can do. Powerful comes from a word that means energy. The word has its own energy. And so it's not me reading the scriptures and not me speaking the word that adds anything to the word. The word has its own energy to do what God intends for it to do. God says in Isaiah 55, So shall my word that goeth forth out of my mouth, so shall be that word. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I send it. We see that power in Hebrews 4.12. It divides the soul and spirit. What can possibly penetrate your soul? What can penetrate you to divide soul and spirit? I don't believe that the author intends to say that there's a difference between the soul and the spirit, but that dividing it is impossible. And yet the Word of God is capable of severing physical existence from the spiritual. It says that it divides the joints and the marrow. Now you might need to speak to Kirsten Andrews over here, the kineologist about this, and uh, ask her, is it possible to separate the movements from, of the body from the, the, joints and the, the joints and the marrow that's in the bone? And maybe she doesn't have an answer for that. Maybe she does. She's shaking her head. Ask her. But I can tell you that the Word of God says it can do it. It can separate the physical from the spiritual. And further, the Word of God discerns your thoughts. God knows the intents of your heart. John said nobody needed to tell Jesus who what is in us. He wrote that Jesus knew what was in man. And Jesus is able with His Word to reach in and to pull out everything that you are. In Revelation 19, there's another description of the Word. There it says that the name of Christ is the Word of God. Out of His mouth, it says, goes a sharp sword that He will use to smite the nations. In John chapter 1, is one of the most significant statements of Jesus Christ in all of the Scriptures. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So we see there's this very close connection between Christ, the Word, and the sword. He uses the Word to cut, to divide, to shape, and to conquer. And either He gives life by this Word, or He judges with it and He destroys. And because of that power, our services in this church are crafted towards the Word of God as the focus. This is why I keep pushing this. I keep pushing this. The Word of God. The Word is the focus because the church has no power without the Word of God. 
Now let's think for a moment about the power of the word. God never told Christians to take up arms, that is to take up swords to conquer. But to be fair about that, I do need to mention that one time Jesus told the disciples that they might need a sword for defense. He was speaking of physical defense. But never did he tell any Christian that we are to take up a physical sword to conquer the world. And he doesn't need to do that because his word is more powerful than all the weapons of war. The history of false Christianity was to fight and to conquer. To literally take up a sword to force confessions out of people. If they won't come to Christ, force them to come to Christ or kill them. And thus in Catholicism, there were fights over territory and over the supremacy of the Pope. The Roman Empire fell, but that didn't stop Roman Catholicism from declaring a holy Roman Empire to be one with the sword if necessary. They would kill if they needed to. And so they started crusades. And to this day, you can go to Israel and you'll find that people 2,000 or rather 1,500 years or 1,000 years later rather still remember this, that there were crusades in Israel where Catholicism not only killed Muslims, but they also killed Jews. And to be fair about that, we ought not to give Protestants a pass either because you go back to the Reformation and they never had any thoughts like we do today of evangelicalism, Zionism. And maybe that's too complicated for you, I don't know. Maybe you don't understand what I mean. But let me just tell you what I mean is that in the end times theology, that is what we call eschatology, in the theology of the end times, we believe that God is going to have a kingdom in which Israel will be prominent. God will establish the kingdom of Israel back on the earth again. That is God's kingdom. Now, though, is not the time for Christians to do anything with swords. The Lord will handle our defense. When he comes to establish his kingdom on the earth, he'll do that for us. For now, this sword is the sword by which all nations will be judged. And so you need to think of it this way. Every time that you pick up your Bible and you look into the Word of God, this is the Word that determines the eternal destiny of souls. Forever, for every person, the Word of God determines the eternal destiny. We're all going to be judged by what's in the Word of God. And so every person every and every part of the world will surrender to the Word that is contained in these 66 books of the Bible, and they will not raise a hand against the Word because the Word will push them down. And so when people stand before God in that last day, the Lord will judge them. Did they believe the Word? Did they do according to the Word? Matthew 7, 21, Jesus said, Not every one that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Now, many of you are in the fundamentals class. You're sitting here today, and if I ask you what is the will of God, I hope that you would respond back to me that the will of God is the Word of God. The will of God is the Word of God. So our church lifts up the Word of God. We begin our services on Sunday morning by reading the Word of God. We stop in the middle of our singing as we worship in song to read the Word of God. And then we get up to, to preach from the Bible and we exposit the Word of God. Without this book, the church has no power for existence. Heaven and hell, man's existence is dependent on the Word. That's how much power that it has. It's a power that is resisted by the natural human heart. All people naturally resist the Word of God. 
It has the power, a power that people have tried to destroy. They want to get rid of the Word of God. It is a Word that has power, so much power that people have attempted to keep it out of the hands of the common ordinary man. And so churches, wanting to interpret the Word of God in their own way, did not want people in the pew to have the Word of God in their own language. And so there were men like Wycliffe and, and Tyndale and Coverdale that experienced persecution because of the Word. They translated the Word. Tyndale was executed. Wycliffe died, but he was so hated because he translated the Word of God that they dug up his bones and burned the bones. And then Coverdale was thrown out of his church because he put the Word of God into the hands of the common people. So it's been, it's, it, they've tried to destroy it, but the Word of God is still here. It has the power to fight back as a sword, and it will subdue. It cannot pass away. Jesus said, it is preserved and settled forever in heaven. Well, the Bible is our sword. And we can defend with it, and we can advance with it until we conquer the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, I believe it, it is with this thought that the Lord opens this letter. Pergamus, in Pergamus, there was an assault on the Word through compromise. And Jesus wanted them to know that the sword will fight back. It will not go down to the defeat of heresy. It's powerful enough to tackle the seat of Satan. Now you see it in verse 13. Satan's seat was there. That word is the word thronos. Same word from which we get throne. And that's just a remarkable reference. And he says that Satan's throne, not even Satan's throne, is powerful enough to overcome the word. Now let me comment on the fact that it has two edges. The double edge symbolizes that it never dulls, that it cuts both ways. It's swift and terrible in judgment. In the reference of Revelation 19, Christ wields this sword. It says, dressed in a vesture dipped in blood. It's relentless in its pursuit so that no one escapes the word. But I also have to mention that it has that other side to it. The other side of the double edge is that the same sword has the power of the gospel. That it will cut and separate you from your sin. In fact, it is the word of God alone that separates you from your sin. As David said... The word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against God. Sin is in your moral fiber. Sin is your nature. You're born in sin. You will continue in sin until there's something that comes along to stop it and pull you away from it. So how is it possible then that what you are on the inside, what you've always been from the very day that you were born... The way that you've always lived, the things that you've always done, how can you be changed from what you are? How will you have faith in Christ when you never cared for anything of the things of God? You never loved anything but sin. How is that going to change? Well, it's only by the Word. God doesn't use any other means. Peter said that we are born again by the Word of God. But people are determined. And they say, I'm not going to come to Christ. I will not come to Christ. And they're right, they won't. Not until the Word penetrates. And God uses that Word to reach the heart. And then there is no power to resist it. Do you understand this? 
the word penetrates. You don't make any decision for Christ until the word awakens your soul and breaks down your resistance. God says His people will be willing in the day of His power. And what is His power? The Word. The Word that penetrates and changes the unwilling to the willing. And so while we look at these churches existing in in impossible places, with hatred and persecution, with hopeless pressure to give up on Christ, here He is standing in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, in the midst of the churches that belong to Him, and He says, Here I come with my sword. And with eyes that flame with fire, the Lord of the church says, I'm coming with the sword and I will take care of things for you. Now let's consider this two-edged sword in its positive and negative sides. There's one side that's good for man. The other side, the other edge is frightening. It's bone-chilling because it affects God's judgment. So first, it is a sword that corrects. The sword separates God's people from the world. Now consider your life for just a moment. There's some of you here today that you have family members in your own house that aren't Christians. Some of you in the larger community of your family, your aunts, your uncles, your cousins, and so on, when you get together at family functions, you are the outcast. You're the one nobody wants to have anything to do with. They certainly don't want to hear what you have to say about the Word of God. What has the power to separate you from them? Why will you stick to Christ before you will stick to that family? Why will you stick to Christ even before you stick to husband or wife? Several years ago, there was a couple in our church. Both of them claimed faith. Both of them were church workers. But the husband began to go off and he walked away on the wrong path. And soon he was gone astray, and you couldn't reason with him. And so I approached his wife, and I told her that for the good of her family, and for the good of her faith, that she needed to obey God, not her husband. And I'll tell you, that was a very, very difficult thing for me to do. Because if you know me, I don't believe there's anything that should separate a husband and a wife in the direction of their family. That is only this, the Word of God. You've got to go in the direction of God. Nothing but following God is what we are supposed to do. And so if a spouse will not follow God, then the other spouse is not to follow that person. So finally, this lady decided, well, she couldn't go with God. She decided to follow her husband. And today, both of them are too far away from God to even recognize that they were ever true Christians. Now, there's some of you that you can get along with those that in your house that are unbelievers, but you are determined that this should ever happen. If that person in the house who is an unbeliever tries to lead you away from God and from your church, you will not do it. You will go with God. So what is it that makes that difference? What is it that separates you from them, even if it disrupts family life and makes your life miserable every day to live in that home? What will cause you to do it? Only the Word. Only the love of God's Word. Because the Bible teaches that to love God's Word is to love Him. So if you don't love the Word and what He tells you to do in obeying the Word, you don't love Jesus Christ. Now do you understand that none of your family that stands against God will come to Christ unless you are faithful? They will never become Christians if you do not stay 
faithful. You've got to be an influence in your home. And if you give up and you give in, then family members won't see any faith in you that does what God says that it will do. And so how will you win them if you don't stand on the Word of God? 1 Corinthians 7 says that a godly mate can save an ungodly one. But it also says that the unbeliever will not cooperate and will not stand with you if you stand for God, then you let them go. How will you do it? By the Word of God. It will separate you from them. It has the power to break physical ties if it must. Now, I'm not advocating that every woman with an unsaved husband and every man with an unsaved wife that you start preparing for divorce right now. I'm not telling you to do that. I, I'm telling you, stay together as best as you can and to be a witness in your family. But you're not going to witness until that sword is in your mouth and in your life. You're no good to them. You are no good to yourself. You are no good to the cause of Christ without standing on the Word. And I want you to get that. The world is nothing and your life is nothing without Christ. But I know there's an argument out there that says, why are we even talking about this? Why do we even worry about it at all? Because God loves everybody, doesn't He? And God's going to take everybody to heaven. See how that plays out at the end of your life. Well, I can tell you by the Word of God how that's going to happen, what's going to happen. You don't have to imagine it. I can show you. Matthew 25, 31 to 33. When the Son of Man shall come in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then shall He sit upon the throne of His glory, and before Him shall be gathered all nations, and He shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And He shall set the sheep on His right hand, but the goats on the left. You see that? The Word of God is talking about separation. The sword corrects the sinfulness of the human heart, and it will divide you from them and you will go into the kingdom of heaven, not them. As Hebrew says, the word is quickening. It gives life. It cuts out sin and conquers it. Charles Wesley expressed it in another way in his great hymn, And Can It Be? I want you to notice the language of this hymn in one stanza. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound by sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray, I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Some of you have sung that song for years, and you didn't know that Wesley wrote the very same doctrine that I've been teaching you all these years. Look at these words on the screen. The soul is imprisoned, bound by sin and nature's night. There Wesley is speaking of the depravity of man. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. And that quickening is the power of the Holy Spirit that opens up the heart to the truth of the gospel. And what is the result of it? He said, I woke. I was spiritually alive when that light of the gospel flooded in. Then my chains fell off, or the shackles that bound me and kept me from coming to Christ were broken. Now my heart was free. And what happens when the Word of God breaks the chains? Nothing but this. I got up. And I followed Christ. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Wesley called this amazing love. How can it be? Now I'd like for you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where we can relate this scripture to the conquering of Satan's dominion. And we'll have another time 
in another sermon to talk to you about Satan's throne and what that means in Pergamos. But now I want you to see how the two-edged sword of the word is relative to Christians in, in Pergamos living where this throne of Satan is. In 2 Corinthians 4, beginning at verse number 3, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, and whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts, to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. Now this is what Satan can do. He blinds the minds of those who do not believe. That's not a few people. That is all people. All people are born in sin. And Satan uses the natural depravity of the human heart as a weapon. Now, this, this, these verses tell us when, when it says that we can't see when we're blinded, that means that we do not understand the Word of God in the Gospel. Now, very simply, you don't have the power to fight Satan. The spiritual world is not a place where you have any ability to fight. And so thank God for this, that He has a weapon that's more powerful than our natural depravity. That God wields a sword that divides the soul and the spirit, or in other words, he uses that to separate you from your sinful nature. Now notice the way that Paul puts this. He says that God commanded the light to shine out of the darkness, and he commanded it to shine in our hearts to give the knowledge of Christ. Are you prepared to argue that God shines light in, but there are others, even Satan, that has the power to block the gospel? Well, amazingly, there are some who say, yes. But here it says that God commands it. When he's ready to save, he commands the light of the gospel to shine into the heart. Now, this, this contains hope for Christians in Pergamos and others like them. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Now, we need to hold on to those words because they become very important as we continue to learn more about what went on in Pergamos, the place where Satan's throne is. Now, I don't want you to go home and forget this sermon. I spend time reviewing the next sermon for two reasons. In the next sermon, I go back over things for two simple reasons. One, some people weren't here. The other reason is, most of you were here, but you give no thought to what was said during the week. You know thoughts of how these things are going to connect. Now, can I help you with something here? Bible exposition is ongoing. Principles are laid down like foundational bricks in one sermon to be built on in the next. And if you forget the foundation, then what choice do I have but to build it again? 
And that's what many Christians do. They're stuck building foundations repeatedly. And they never get any higher than the foundation. I want to read something to you from Hebrews. And this might seem like it's off our subject, but this is right on target for understanding how we are to study the Word of God and learn from it that we must be adept in the way that we hold and use the sword. If we don't, it ruins the impact that we have for Christ with His Word. So the author of Hebrews wrote this in Hebrews 6. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, and of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permit. Bible expositors interpret this in one of two ways. First, the author may be speaking of Judaism in the Old Testament that were foundations for New Testament doctrine. And in this case, the Jews can't stay in the Old Testament doctrine. They need to move on. They need to move on into the Christian faith because the things of old are just types of Christ. And now Christ has come. The Antichrist has come. And so that would be like me teaching you on Sunday nights about the Old Testament sacrifices, but then I never say anything about how those sacrifices typified Christ. So they needed to move on to maturity to see Christ. That's one interpretation. Or, the author may be speaking of Christian doctrine in which these are people that stay on the surface all of the time. That they have to speak only of simple things of the gospel like initial saving faith about baptism, about clean living, and so on. Well, you need to know those things. You surely do. But do you need to hear them every week? Is that to be the sermon every week? To hear the gospel of Christ again? Now, we preach the gospel in every message. But do we need to concentrate there? Do we need to talk about baptism? Do we need to talk about foundational things every week that we come to church? No, what we need to do is to build on the foundation that has been laid. And we need to move on into the better, higher doctrines of God's Word. And when I say better, I don't mean that those things aren't good. I mean, we need to be Christians that mature in the faith, that grow in our faith, that are sanctified in the faith of God. We can't call ourselves people of the book if we're people of only a few pages of the book. We've got to have it all. And so, again, the pastor's job is to declare the whole counsel of the Word of God. It's the parts that you don't like and the parts that you do like but probably more the parts that you didn't even know that you should like. So I guess it's the difference between a penknife and a two-edged sword. And what we want to do here is to get out the big old sword and use that in our preaching and teaching. That's what will help you the most. Now I just want to touch on the next part because I've alluded to this already. Secondly, the sword is a sword of condemnation. It will give life, but it will also take life. It will take life and turn it into a nightmare that you'll never escape. Now, people need to understand what they don't understand. Christians are the sinner's best friend. We are the sinner's best friend. There are political movements in our country that want to rid government office of anyone who believes in Jesus Christ. Did you know that Christians are now considered to be the worst enemies of the state? Now, if you don't believe that, ask Bernie Sanders. He pressed a Christian nominee in Senate confirmation hearings about his belief 
that those who do not trust Christ are destined for hell. And Sanders said, America does not need people like that in leadership. They're not what this country stands for. Didn't he know that Christians have believed that for 2,000 years? That's the gospel of Christ that's found in the Word of God. Friends, this is exactly what America needs. Christians are not the enemy of America. We are the friends of sinners who do not want the wrath of God to fall on this nation, which it surely will. The sword condemns. It corrects or it will condemn. So either Jesus will be your Savior and Lord or He will be your judge and executioner. The culture at Pergamos didn't like that. And neither do Americans today. Now the question is, has Satan's throne moved from Pergamos to here? It's better to be corrected than it is to be condemned because there is a day of reckoning that's coming. And I can tell you that based on the authority of God's Word. And so my message in this part ends with the emphasis on the Word of God. That Christ holds this two-edged sword And if he uses it, then you need to learn what can he do with it. You need to know how vital it is for you to be able to use the sword and the power of the Holy Spirit. Your friends and your family can be brought to Jesus Christ with this sword. But they won't be unless you live it every day. They will not be unless your life is a living testimony of the effect that the Word of God has had on your life. The simple gospel of Christ is that He died on the cross to save you from your sins and you must repent and believe that gospel to be saved. And if you haven't done that, you need to do that first. That's first in the order of business. It is the will of God that you be saved. The Word remains a condemning sword until the time that you believe in Jesus Christ. And then, when you have trusted Christ, dedicate yourself to learning God's Word. And it will continue to correct you all through your life until you come to the place, as Paul says, this life also of Jesus Christ may be made made manifest in our mortal flesh. Now he ended 2 Corinthians 4 this way, and I'll end with it too. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, I preached on that, that part of that verse several times, our light affliction, it always stuns me. That the Apostle Paul, you just, you just read Paul in 2 Corinthians uh, 11 and see what he went through for the gospel of Christ. And he says, this is light affliction. Light affliction. I, it always amazes me to read that. But he says, this light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at things which are seen, but at things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. This is what the Spirit says to the churches. Listen to, believe, and obey the Word of God. This world is going to pass away. But Christ's people, His Word, Christ Himself, are forever. We must hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to You thanking You again for the Word of God. How it changes our lives, how it cuts to the very marrow and bone, divides the soul and the spirit, that it's able to remove the sin that's in our life, the sin that is in our nature, able to take it away from us, that we might be justified with God. 
Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ who gave his life for our sins, who earned the righteousness that can be given to us by belief in him, in his word. The word is the word of God. Lord, we pray for your people today as a church that we would stand on this word. We'd be fully committed to your word, to live it every single day. And for those that may not be saved here today, Lord, I pray that they would listen and concentrate and think over the message again today and let and that that word of Christ may begin to fill into their souls that you would command that light to shine in and bring them to salvation in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, may this be what this church is known for in this community, the church that stands on the word of God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www dot bbaptist dot org